Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 26 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of sexual violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. high-pitched sound of the home telephone echoed through the Neely household. Liz Neely answered. Someone from her son's school was on the other end of the line. It was June 5th, 1998. The staff member told Liz her son Wesley had not been feeling well and needed to come home. 11-year-old Wesley had epilepsy, and that day he had a seizure, which left him exhausted and confused. When he got home, Wesley rested for a while, before feeling much better. It did not take long for the boy to want to move about. 
Wesley had not been allowed outside to play in a couple of weeks. He was not in any trouble. That's not the type of child he was. Wesley was, if anything, too helpful. The insistence he stayed inside came from his mother. She was concerned after an alarming incident a few weeks earlier. Wesley had been approached in the street by a man he did not know. The man asked Wesley if he would be interested in helping him fix his car. Excited about the prospect, Wesley told his mother. Liz was immediately suspicious of the stranger. Why would he be asking her young son to help him with something like that? She went outside, but the man was gone. Spooked by the interaction, Liz kept Wesley to play inside for a while as a precaution. Now weeks later, Wesley asked his mother if he could go to the shop before they collected Robert, his younger brother, from the nursery. He asked for 50p to buy them some sweets. Liz relented. The shop was only down the road, and Wesley knew to be back in time to take his epilepsy medication. After being handed some change, he left his house on Croydon Road in Arthur's Hill, West Newcastle. He hopped on his pink and white bike that his grandfather had recently bought him and cycled towards the shop. It was getting closer to the time Liz had to pick up her youngest son, so she presumed Wesley had cycled ahead to meet her there. When she got to the gates of the nursery, she asked around, but no one had seen him. Wesley was very close to his grandfather Harry. Harry lived on the same street, so Liz stopped by to ask her father if Wesley had called in perhaps popping over to say hello on the way to the nursery, and then he lost track of time. Unfortunately, Harry had not seen his grandson that day. Liz began to worry. Wesley might have had a seizure somewhere or fallen off his bike. She went to the shop where Wesley would have bought sweets, and the woman working there told her Wesley had come in. He still had the 50p he was given by his mother, but Wesley did not spend it. He helped the shopkeeper take some empty boxes out of the back of the shop, so he was given the sweets for free as a reward. After providing a helping hand, he left. It was long past the time Wesley should have taken his medication. He did not have a watch, but he always knew to come home in the evening to ensure he took his medicine. His mother Liz and grandfather Harry searched the streets, and their neighbours offered assistance. Anyone who knew the boy understood something like this was out of character. Surprisingly, when Liz phoned the police that night, the officer did not share her concern. He's probably out with his friends, 
they told her. Liz was informed she was just being overly anxious and that Wesley would probably come home soon. Liz waited with her younger son Robert while her father and other locals looked for Wesley late into the night. But they did not find him. When Wesley did not come home, more people joined the search. Wesley's grandfather Harry knocked on doors and printed flyers with the 11-year-old's photograph above a paragraph asking anyone who had seen him to contact the Northumbria police. Wesley was described as being 4 feet 9 inches tall, with dark brown hair and blue eyes. He was last seen wearing a navy and orange tracksuit. Officers conducted a thorough search of Wesley's home. They looked in all the places a young boy might hide, under the bed, in the loft, behind the bath. But he was nowhere to be found. It became imperative to locate the missing 11-year-old. It was around the time he had missed the third dose of his epilepsy medication when there was a knock on Lizzie's front door. The young boy thought he had found Wesley's bike. Wesley's mother's stomach dropped at the sight of the bicycle. Wesley would not have dumped his bike. It was a prized possession. Liz asked the boy where he had found it, and he told her he had seen two girls playing with it. When the girls were tracked down, they said that they had found the bike on Wingrove Road a few streets away. There was no reason for Wesley to go to Wingrove Road in the area of Fenham. A street was neither on the route to the shop nor the nursery. Dozens of officers conducted the search. They looked around industrial estates, inside abandoned buildings, allotments, parks and fields. Once the word was out and people knew Wesley was missing, numerous callers contacted the Northumbria Constabulary claiming to have seen him in the West Newcastle area. So officers continued to believe that he was alive, but had run away from home. Heather Carroll was assigned as the family liaison officer to the Neelys. Liz and Harry couldn't believe that Wesley would simply choose to stay away from home. He was just not the type of child to disobey his mother, and he never would have left his bike discarded somewhere. He was not necessarily streetwise, and he required medication. Harry had barely slept since Liz told him Wesley was missing. Every hour was spent searching for his grandson. After 72 hours, the police made a public appeal for information. Liz told the press, We just want him back. Yet more sightings of Wesley were reported. Children who knew him from school said they saw him in the park. People unfamiliar with Wesley also said they saw a boy in West Newcastle who matched his description. 
Every lead was followed up. But there was no sign of Wesley at any of the locations where he was believed to have been seen. He looked like many other young boys of his age, and well-meaning citizens could have been mistaken. However, officers thought the sighting seemed credible, so police continued with their theory that Wesley was a runaway. The media caught wind of the case and began to report a similar story that the 11-year-old had upped and left home. Speculative reports said that Wesley was unruly, playing on the stereotype of a typical boy from a working-class area in the north of England. On June 8th, Police Chief Dave Hepworth said, There's nothing to suggest any suspicious circumstances surrounding Wesley's disappearance, but he has missed several courses of his daily medication. Wesley's family continued to appeal for help. His grandfather Harry said, We are pleading with anyone who is misguided enough to harbour him to please, please come forward. A widespread search of the local area was conducted, and the lake in Lazizes Park was dredged. After three weeks, a new investigator was added to the case. Northumbria Police Detective Superintendent Trevor Fordy. By June 26th, officers reported that their hopes of finding Wesley alive and well were beginning to fade. DSI Fordy stated that it was likely that Wesley may have fallen into a coma without his medication. The detective also voiced the possibility that Wesley could have been abducted. DSI 40 said, We have not given up hope of finding Wesley alive, but the longer time goes on, we have become increasingly anxious. We have discussed this with his parents and they are starting to think the worst now. He has never been reported missing from home before and has never been missing overnight. The police decided to reconstruct Wesley's last known movements in the hopes that it could refresh someone's memory. One of Wesley's friends, William, assisted in the reconstruction. He wore the same navy tracksuit with orange stripes, an orange t-shirt and black kicker's shoes. William stood outside a shop with the pink and white bike. He had been best friends with Wesley for years. He wanted to do what he could to help find his best friend. William's mother, Helen, said at the time, they were very close friends, and he's been up and down about it. Wesley was a very happy, friendly little boy. Officers also made sure to keep a close eye on Europe's travelling fair, The Hoppings. The event was going to open on Newcastle's Town Moor on June 25th. They had officers surveilling the area in case it drew Wesley in. While the investigation started out with 40 police officers, that had now swollen to around 100. 
Detective Superintendent Trevor Fordy began to speak with each person who reported seeing Wesley and eliminated the sightings one by one. Now fearing the boy had been abducted, officers began to look into convicted sex offenders in the area. A hostel in the west end of Newcastle housed convicted paedophiles and people convicted of sexual offences. All the residents were looked into, but there was no evidence that they had anything to do with Wesley's disappearance. However, the police did receive an interesting call. A social worker offered a tip about someone who lived nearby. The caller said the man had been in a home for young sex offenders, but was not on the sex offenders' register. A social worker disclosed that the 18-year-old lived on Wingrove Road. This rang bells because it was the same street where Wesley's bike had been found. DSI 40 knew that the youth owned a Range Rover, and as the detective followed the lead and went to Wingrove Road, he spotted a young man washing a Range Rover on a driveway. Dominic McKilligan's name had already come up in the investigation as one of the people who said they had seen Wesley since his disappearance. DSI 40 decided to bring McKilligan in to ask him about the sighting. Accompanied by his solicitor, McKilligan came to the station to be interviewed. He seemed unfazed by the questioning but his solicitor accused the police of suspecting him because of his past. McKilligan told the police he did not know Wesley, but thought he saw him. Officers searched Dominic McKilligan's house and forensically examined his clothing. They did not find anything to warrant an arrest, so McKilligan was free to leave. However, DSI 40 had made the decision to put the suspect under surveillance. While the investigators monitored McKilligan's movements, they hoped he might lead them to Wesley. He was observed getting a false license plate for his car. He was also seen purchasing razor blades and aspirin, so officers had to act quickly. They suspected he may intend to harm himself or someone else. In the searches of McKilligan's house, they had found a torn-up check. It took time to piece back together. However, by then McKilligan was acting suspiciously enough under surveillance. Officers felt it pertinent to arrest him. The check was found at the bottom of a bin. It had been made out to Wesley Neely for the sum of £150. Analysis of the handwriting proved it had been written by Dominic McKilligan. McKilligan remained unfazed when he was presented with the evidence. He said that he filled out several blank checks and claimed someone else must have written Wesley's name. Eventually, the suspect made a startling claim. McKilligan said that he had been the one to abduct Wesley Neely. 
but he had handed the boy over to a paedophile ring. According to McKilligan, Wesley was still alive. He told the officers that he had spoken to a member of the group just two days earlier who said as much. Crying in the interview, Dominic McKilligan apologised for giving Wesley Neely to a paedophile ring and gave up the name of the man he said was his connection to the predatory gang. The name given was Martin. McKilligan said he had met him through a newspaper advert and the two had a one-night stand. McKilligan told officers, I happened to tell this man about Wesley and other boys in the area, and he'd said he'd never had sex with a child and wanted to try it. McKilligan said he had spoken with Martin since the abduction, and Martin told him that he had taken Wesley to his house. Officers had come across contact details for a Martin, both a name and address when they searched McKilligan's diary. It was the information the officers needed. They headed to the house and quickly arrested the man they were told was holding Wesley captive. The address was thoroughly searched, but Wesley was not there. During questioning, it emerged that Martin had no idea what was going on and he had no link to Wesley's disappearance. It became clear that Dominic McKilligan had lied. Officers had been given false hope that Wesley was alive. Thankfully, this information was not passed to his family. Dominic McKilligan relented and told the police another version of events. He said that he had spoken to Wesley about helping him fix his car days before the child's disappearance. McKilligan had a mini metro in his garage that he had been working on. On June 5th, he heard noises in the garage and thinking someone was intruding, he swung the doors and shouted. McKilligan said that Wesley had been on the roof of the car and got a fright, which caused him to fall off onto a ratchet that was on the concrete floor. McKilligan said Wesley had hurt his head badly, and there was blood everywhere. He claimed he panicked because he knew his past convictions would be used against him, so McKilligan dragged Wesley to the back of the garage and placed a black bin liner over his head. He then strangled Wesley until the boy stopped breathing. McKilligan hired a car and put Wesley's body into some bin liners before placing it into a cardboard box in the boot of the vehicle. He drove towards Healy, a village in the Tyne Valley, where he dumped Wesley's body in a wooded ditch. McKilligan agreed to bring the investigators to Wesley's remains on July 4th. Dominic McKilligan travelled with detectives and directed them to a woodland area 20 miles from Wesley's home. 
they stopped the car close to the A68 and McKilligan pointed towards a lane. As detectives walked down the lane, they could smell something familiar to them. The distinct odour of human decomposition. It did not take long for them to see something in the long grass. Amongst bags of discarded rubbish, there was a box. They could see a pair of kicker's trainers protruding from a bin liner inside. DSI 40 recognised the footwear straight away. They were the shoes Wesley had last been seen wearing a month earlier. The laces were still tied in the double knots Wesley's mother Liz had made before he left the house on June 5th. Wesley was unable to tie his own shoes. The 50p that Liz had given him for sweets was still in his pocket. It was the middle of summer. The temperatures in Newcastle had risen to 20 degrees Celsius. For 30 days, Wesley's body had been exposed to the elements and wildlife in the wooded area. An officer cradled the boy's remains as he was carried away from the scene to be examined. Dominic McKilligan appeared to be oblivious to the seriousness of his crimes. When the detectives had composed themselves enough to get back into the car with him, McKilligan asked, Is it possible to have my car back now? Dominic McKilligan was arrested for the murder of Wesley Neely and a murder inquiry was officially launched. DSI 40 had to make the journey to Croydon Road to inform Wesley's family of the discovery. He sat Liz down and she asked him straight out if they had found Wesley. At that moment, Harry and Liz's world collapsed. Weeks of being told that the boy was choosing to stay away from home gave them a glimmer of hope that maybe he was alive. Now his body had been found, there was no chance anymore of him walking back through the front door. Liz and Harry begged to see Wesley's remains. They just needed to say goodbye. Harry said that he just wanted to look into his grandson's eyes one last time. But it was impossible. DSI 40 told them that while they were sure it was Wesley based on the clothing he was wearing, the detective did not want Wesley's family to see the boy that way. Liz and Harry were informed that there was someone in custody for Wesley's murder. They were not yet told about the details of Wesley's death. Liz and Harry had to try and remain strong for Wesley's brother, Robert. It was his birthday the next day, and they did not want to tell him that Wesley had died. Not yet. Robert glanced through all of the birthday cards he had been sent, but he was looking for one in particular. Liz said he asked her, 
as my Wesley's card. She had to tell him that the postman must not have brought it yet. The truth was too hard for her to share. Wesley Neely's remains were examined by a home office pathologist. As they were left outside in a plastic bin liner, decomposition had been accelerated significantly because of the exposure to the elements. The boy's body had signs of animal predation too. It was unlikely after such degradation that the pathologist would be able to determine an exact cause of death the evidence suggested Wesley had been raped. Wesley Neely was very close to his mother and grandfather. Harry lived just down the street and would often look after the children while Liz was at work. Wesley was an active boy. He loved climbing trees and when he reached the top he would turn to look at his family who were watching and waiting to give him a round of applause. They said that Wesley was great at fixing things. He had previously repaired a broken hoover and was so proud of what he had done. Wesley had no problem being himself. He was confident and friendly, and would often stop his pink and white mountain bike to have a chat or offer a helping hand. He liked school, but fell a bit behind. He struggled with telling the time and reading. Wesley had ambitions for what he wanted to do when he was older. He wanted to serve in the army. He liked to play football in the park with his friends. And his favourite film was 80s fantasy, The Never-Ending Story. Wesley Neely's funeral took place on August 28, 1998. The sealed casket seemed far too small in the back of the hearse. The car was surrounded by hundreds of mourners. Wesley was finally laid to rest in Elzig Cemetery. Officers who had been on the case were in attendance. One officer who had carried Wesley's body to the car after it had been found wore the same suit he had been wearing that day. He told Wesley's mother Liz he had not washed the suit because he knew it was the closest she would get to giving her son a hug goodbye. Harry, Wesley's grandfather, later said, For us, it wasn't like burying Wesley. We were just burying a box. He made it much more difficult because we hadn't had a chance to say our final goodbyes. Dominic McKilligan had been formally charged and remanded into custody in July 1998. The trial began a year later. When Liz had first seen Dominic McKilligan in court after Wesley's body was found, she recognised him. He had been seen playing football with the children on the street 
including Wesley. Liz had presumed because of his age and how he was talking to the children that McKilligan was someone's older brother. In his opening statement, Prosecutor John Milford QC said that McKilligan was accused of murdering Wesley in his garage before dumping Wesley's body in a secluded area where it would later be found. Milford explained that Dominic McKilligan then returned home and washed away the blood. McKilligan carried on with his life and acted as though nothing happened. Testimony would reveal that the police search for Wesley eventually led them to Dominic McKilligan's home. During the investigation, they came across a cheque that was made out to Wesley. McKilligan had then led police to Wesley's body, which he had dumped near the village of Healy in Northumberland. Wesley Neely was described as an affectionate and cheerful little boy who found it easy to get along with other people. The prosecutor said that one of Wesley's downfalls was that he was much more trusting of strangers than most children of his age. Wesley liked to strike up conversations with many students who lived in the same area as him. One of them was Dominic McKilligan. John Milford QC told the court that McKilligan had lured Wesley to his garage at his home on Wingrove Road. McKilligan then hit Wesley across the head with a wrench before he strangled him to death. Milford said that the murder had been sexually motivated. Dominic McKilligan had planned for Wesley Neely to be his victim. Addressing the jury, John Milford QC stated, the defendant was cultivating Wesley in the weeks before his death and was doing so because he had sexual desires on him. McKilligan had initially met Wesley when he was delivering pizzas around the area. He would get to know the neighbourhood children by playing football with them in the street. Wesley had been outside playing when McKilligan had struck up a conversation with him. Wesley saw no other reason to be afraid of McKilligan and was confident enough to go and visit him at his home when he asked. McKilligan would have seemed more like an older brother figure than a threat to Wesley. The prosecution also put forward the suggestion that in addition to killing Wesley, McKilligan was set on committing a sexual attack. When Wesley was lured to McKilligan's garage, John Milford QC said that the defendant attempted to rape the youngster and partially succeeded. Typically in a homicide case, the prosecution will just pursue a murder conviction, but they wanted to ensure McKilligan would be on the sex offender's register. After killing Wesley and disposing of his body, McKilligan went to work. Before becoming the main suspect in the case, McKilligan had been interviewed by police and gave a false version of the events. He had even flagged down a police car during the search to claim that he had seen Wesley. 
When police searched his home, they eventually found a ripped-up cheque addressed to Wesley. While McKilligan had at first denied any involvement, he finally cracked and led police to Wesley's body. Dominic McKilligan claimed that Wesley had been killed accidentally. He said that Wesley had fallen off a car in his garage and had started to bleed profusely. McKilligan alleged that he had panicked, placing a bag over Wesley's head and then squeezed his hands around the boy's neck until Wesley stopped making a sound. John Milford QC did not believe the defendant's version of the events, telling jurors, The prosecution's case, in essence, is that the defendant made friends with Wesley so that Wesley was confident to visit the defendant at his home. In the garage at Wingrove Road, the defendant made sexual advances to the boy, which were inevitably rejected. Notwithstanding, the defendant raped the boy, then killed him, to ensure that the child did not report the occurrence. The prosecution called several witnesses, including 20-year-old Anne Lang. Lang had been Dominic McKilligan's flatmate at the time of the murder. She told the jury that McKilligan seemed as normal as he typically was, just moments after he allegedly beat and strangled Wesley to death. She said that she had been in the flat that day and knew that McKilligan was in the garage. And Lang testified that she popped her head around the door of the garage and saw McKilligan and did not see anything untoward. Lang revealed that a few days after Wesley was murdered, Dominic McKilligan took her out for a drive in the new Range Rover that he had just obtained. He drove past the area where Wesley's body was hidden. Lang said, I remember seeing signs for Carlisle. Then we went down a lane. It was dark. I got quite scared and asked Dominic to turn round. And Lang had spoken to McKilligan about Wesley Neely. He had told her that he reported seeing Wesley running down an alleyway. McKilligan's other flatmate Nicola Thompson told the court that she heard McKilligan shouting in his sleep. He shouted the word no she presumed he was having a bad dream. A lollipop man testified that he had seen Wesley cycling towards Wingrove Road, where the accused lived. This was also the area where Wesley's bike was found by local children the next day. Forensic evidence was also presented there had been traces of Wesley's blood found in McKilligan's car and in the garage. There was, however, no evidence that Wesley had been on the roof of the car like McKilligan claimed. Witness testimony revealed that on the night of Wesley's murder, McKilligan had attempted to cancel his shift delivering pizzas for a local restaurant, but eventually went in as usual. Investigators testified about the lies Dominic McKilligan told throughout his interrogations and how much time had been wasted following up on not only his false leads, 
but false sightings from members of the public too. The defence counsel Patrick Cosgrove QC told the jury that Dominic McKilligan had been abused for 18 months when he was nine years old. Cosgrove also said that the authorities who were supposed to be responsible for the defendant's care following his release from a young offenders institute had given him minimal support. Dominic McKilligan testified in his own defence. He cried in the dock and wiped the tears from behind his glasses as he recounted the same story he told investigators. He said that Wesley's death had been an accident. McKilligan claimed he had accidentally frightened the boy when he swung open the garage doors and Wesley fell off the roof of the car. The defendant's solicitor asked if there had been any sexual contact with the victim, and McKilligan answered no. Prosecutor John Milford QC began cross-examining the defendant. Addressing McKilligan, Milford said, You cultivated him for your own base sexual motives. You lured him into the garage where you attempted to seduce him without success and he resisted your advances. You then forced yourself on him, and then purposefully sought carefully to dispose of the evidence. Elford went on to say to McKilligan, you led him to believe that if he came and helped you with your car, there was something in it for him. You made a mistake. You forgot about the check. Powerful evidence which linked you to this child. McKilligan denied this and said that he had written the cheque because Wesley had told him he and his grandfather would help with the car. But entries in McKilligan's diary incriminated him further. He had written about how long Wesley had been missing. Experts believe that McKilligan had not yet reached a crescendo in his criminal behaviour and would go on to kill again if he was not stopped. Throughout the three-week trial, Wesley's loved ones had to listen to the harrowing account of his murder. Harry had placed a yellow wreath at his grandson's grave. On the card he had written, Evil cut you down this day, but the good Lord will have his way. I'll make you this last promise, Wesley. Some mother's son will pay. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safer families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. After deliberating for two hours and 50 minutes, the jury would agree unanimously on their verdicts. Dominic McKilligan was found guilty of the rape and murder of Wesley Neely. 
and a guilty verdict for the count of rape was announced. Cries from Wesley's loved ones echoed throughout the courtroom. Before handing down the sentence addressing McKilligan, Judge Mr Justice Bennett stated, No words of mine can adequately express the horror and revulsion of your crimes. You have nerves of steel. You are a dangerous, manipulative, callous paedophile and killer. His terror at what you were doing to him must have been quite awful for him as you struck him with a ratchet, raped him and closed your hand around his neck and strangled him. By your dreadful action, you have deprived a loving and devoted family of a son, a brother and a grandson. The family's grief must be heart-rending. I am satisfied that you are a highly dangerous person, particularly to young boys. Dominic McKilligan was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Wesley Neely and 14 years for rape. The presiding judge ordered that these sentences run concurrently with a recommendation that McKilligan serve a minimum of 20 years behind bars. Dominic McKilligan had not shown any remorse throughout the trial, and Detective Superintendent Trevor Fordy described him as being highly intelligent, articulate, plausible and manipulative. Wesley's grandfather Harry told the media, If I could get my hands on him, I'd kill him. There's no doubt about that. If it had not been for the fact I may have harmed others, I would have taken a gun or a bomb into court to get rid of him. McKilligan is pure evil. We want him put away for good. We don't want do-gooders to say in 20 years' time that he is cured and should be released. We want full justice for Wesley, but also protection for other people's youngsters. It is horrifying that someone with his background could just drift into a community. How many more are out there? As Dominic McKilligan was driven to prison in the police van, crowds gathered to hit the vehicle as it passed. The angry group made their disgust known as they pounded on the van. Some of those had been members of the jury. TSI Fordy told reporters that he was very satisfied with the verdict and praised the jury especially as they had not been told about the extent of McKilligan's prior convictions. The detective told a reporter for the independent newspaper, Dominic McKilligan, in my view, was a time bomb waiting to go off. Wesley Neely was an innocent, vulnerable little boy who was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. It is not up to me to direct any blame to any other agency. I think we all have got to look at what is currently in place at the moment and see how we can make it better in the future. 
Perhaps it is the system that is not right, and maybe we need to change it. I would never like anything like this to happen again. Following the trial, it would be publicly revealed that Dominic McKilligan had previous convictions for violent sex acts committed against young boys. He had been released from a young offenders institute just nine months before he murdered Wesley Neely. And Dominic McKilligan was 13 years old. He committed disturbing sexual acts on four young boys aged between 7 and 11 in Bournemouth. He had invited them to play games with him, but instead he tortured them, sexually abused them and beat one of them with an iron bar. The boys initially kept quiet about what happened. However, whispers on the school playground would lead to a child sex abuse investigation. More than 40 children were interviewed. The attacks were so traumatising that all four of the victims needed counselling in the aftermath. A confidential report from Tavistock Clinic assessed Dominic McKilligan and found that he was capable of carrying out fantasies of killing a child. The mother to one of the victims spoke about McKilligan and said, There was two sides to him. He could be so charming and polite, but if you looked into his eyes, you could see he had no soul. She revealed in an interview that she always believed that McKilligan would end up killing a child and said that she foiled an attack on her son in 1994. The victim's mother explained that some of her son's friends came running to her house in tears after McKilligan had dragged her son into the woods, claiming he was going to kill him. She said that she ran out of the house and found her son on the ground with Dominic McKilligan standing above him. Thank God I got there when I did, she said. He hadn't had time to hurt him. Dominic McKilligan was taken into care in 1993 by Dorset Social Services after he was accused of sexually abusing children. McKilligan pleaded guilty to 11 counts of indecent assault and one of gross indecency in 1994. He was not charged with rape because the law stated that a child of his age was not capable of committing the act. As reported in The Guardian, Neil Hunt, the NSPCC Director of Child Protection, said that Dominic McKilligan was already a seriously disturbed boy by 14 years of age. He was in local authority care and assessed as a very grave risk to children. McKilligan was sentenced for the crimes at a youth court in Dorset on August 31, 1994. He was placed under social services supervision for three years. He was ordered to receive psychiatric treatment in a unit for disturbed children, a Cliff Young People's Centre which was run by Durham County Council. McKilligan lived at Collingwood House, 
a specialist unit for young sex offenders. His three-year supervision for these earlier crimes ended on August 31, 1997, the day before the Sex Offenders Act became law. He was not placed on the Sex Offenders Register as a result. This would have forced him to register his status with the local police, and they would have been aware such a dangerous individual was in the area. When Dominic McKilligan moved from Bournemouth to Newcastle, police were not formally notified because social services had no legal obligation to inform them. McKilligan had allegedly tricked a social worker into believing that he had contacted the police himself. He did not have to inform his landlady on Wingrove Road about his prior convictions either, or the college where he was studying music. A spokesperson for Newcastle City Council said that they learned that McKilligan was in the area on November 24, 1997, by which time he was considered an adult. The council said that they ran checks to make sure McKilligan had no access to children and were satisfied that he did not. During the search for Wesley Neely, police had contacted local sex offenders. Still, since officers were unaware that Dominic McKilligan was a sex offender, they had no reason to focus on him in particular. As it transpired, however, there was somebody in Tyneside Social Services who knew that McKilligan was living in the area. When this person learned about Wesley being missing, they contacted police with that information and McKilligan became the prime suspect in Wesley's disappearance. Officers from Dorset Police who were involved in the prior conviction believed that McKilligan was likely to kill somebody in future. Detective Sergeant Neil Clawton told the media, We believe that there is a lad who was probably born evil. At the ages of 12, 13, 14, he was committing serious sexual offences on very young children. I believe that someone like him should never ever come out of prison because he's always going to be a danger to society, particularly to children. The government promised swift action and a review was ordered into any shortcomings in the way that public authorities had handled McKilligan's care and supervision. The Department of Health would state, There is deep concern about this tragic case, and what appears to be significant shortcomings in the way public authorities handled the care and supervision of Dominic McKilligan. A review of the case is currently underway, and officials are working closely with the authorities to make sure that the review is completed quickly, gives a full and honest examination of what happened, and includes independent oversight. Detective Superintendent Trevor Fordy, who had led the search for Wesley, said that guidelines about exchanging information needed to be made mandatory, stating... People like Dominic McKilligan have to be viewed as potential re-offenders. The police can only take responsibility for offenders if they know about them. 
Wesley's grandfather Harry agreed and called for the loophole to be closed, adding that it was terrifying to think that somebody with McKilligan's disturbing background could be hiding in plain sight in the community. There had been no suitable youth detention centre in Bournemouth, so McKilligan was placed in Durham, far from his victims and those who knew what he was capable of. There were calls for changes in the law to make it mandatory for social workers to notify police when sex offenders are released from custody. The murder of Wesley Neely made it evident that there were shortfalls in legislation. TSI 40 said, If police are not informed about the release of paedophiles, then it's impossible for us to exercise any form of risk management against them hurting other children. Society cannot afford to have anyone with a history of paedophilia at liberty in the community without an in-depth assessment of the risk they might pose to children or other vulnerable people. With Dominic McKilligan behind bars, his own mother would come forward to share her fears of her son in an interview with BBC Two's Close Up North. She said, I have been told he has the makeup of a serial killer, and I am convinced he has practiced on someone else first, perhaps a homeless person. She spoke about her son's earlier offences, stating the only reason he had been caught was because the children had come forward to reveal what he had done to them. She added, The only way to be sure of their silence was to kill them. While there had been calls for a change in the law and a proper investigation into how McKilligan was handled, three months after his trial, this had still not begun. Wesley's family chastised the authorities, with his grandfather Harry accusing them of running scared from the truth. A Department of Health spokesperson would admit that the investigation had not begun because of protracted negotiations between the three social services departments that were involved as well as the police and other agencies. She said, That is all we can say at the moment. We cannot name who will be leading the inquiry because that has not yet been confirmed. In March 2000, it was announced that Dominic McKilligan was appealing his rape conviction, much to the dismay of Wesley Neely's family. McKilligan took his case to the appeal court in London to try and have the conviction quashed. If McKilligan was successful, this meant he would not need to be placed on the sex offenders register if he was released from prison. The news was crushing not only to Wesley's family, but even McKilligan's. His mother said that she had been struggling to build a new life for herself and her young daughter. McKilligan's own mother urged the appeal judges not to overturn the conviction, stating that he had slipped through the net last time, which allowed her son to kill Wesley. Quote, he cannot be allowed to just melt into the background and disappear. Just the thought of him being released gives me the creeps. 
he should at least be made to sign the paedophile register so the police can keep tabs on him. Dominic McKilligan's mother told the media that he was born in 1979. His father was Turkish and she was English. The convicted killer's mother said her son had been different from a young age and did not mix well with other children. Despite every effort to help him interact with other youngsters, he was not interested. His mother was not the only person to notice McKilligan's behaviour. A teacher once described him as being, quote, devoid of all humanity. McKilligan was just ten years old at the time. The length of time Wesley's body had remained undiscovered meant that vital forensic evidence had degraded, meaning there was not enough proof to uphold the rape conviction. The Court of Appeal would ultimately quash McKilligan's conviction, meaning that he had escaped the sex offender's register for a second time. Although he will not be a registered sex offender, his murder conviction means that even after his eventual release, he will be on license for the rest of his life. Shortly after the rape conviction was quashed, Wesley's family announced they were planning on suing Northumbria police. They sought to argue that the constabulary did not treat Wesley's disappearance seriously enough and made jarring comments about him, which left him labelled as a streetwise runaway. They wrote that they told the police that Wesley had medication for epilepsy and his abandoned bike was found the following day, two things that should have convinced the officers of Northumbria Police that something sinister had most likely happened to Wesley. It was 17 days before Detective Superintendent Trevor Fordy was called in to assist in the investigation. The family wrote that it was only at this moment that the case was investigated properly. Harry's questions about what happened were published in the Northern Echo. They read, We had to wait so long for a senior officer to come and ask the proper questions, get to know the family and take things in the right direction. Why did they think he was just a runaway? Do they have preconceptions about children in the West End? Leslie's mother Liz said that her little boy's name had been dragged through the mud. Ultimately, the family would decide not to take legal action against the police. The following year, a prison officer at HMP Durham was suspended and arrested after he was accused of sexually abusing Dominic McKilligan. The officer would staunchly deny the allegations and McKilligan was transferred to HMP Wakefield. Prison officials announced that they had launched an internal inquiry into the claims. This inquiry would uncover child pornography on the prison officer's computer. Brian Besford was not charged with any crimes in relation to McKilligan's claims 
Still, he was charged with 10 counts of making, sharing and possessing indecent images of children aged under 16. After being convicted of sex offences, Bestford was ordered to pay £3,325 in restitution and was ordered to sign on to the Sex Offenders Register. The findings of the review conducted into Dominic McKilligan's case were finally released in November 2001. It had been commissioned by Durham County Council, Bournemouth Borough Council and Newcastle City Council and had been written by Bridge Childcare Development Services. These types of case reviews aim to uncover mistakes that can be avoided in future and recommend ways that agencies can safeguard children in their care. The review revealed that there had been 16 different agencies and 200 people involved in Dominic McKilligan's care before he killed Wesley Neely. It concluded that each agency had poor recording practices and had failed to share critical information with other agencies. These agencies consisted of social services, police, education and other workers. The failures included a lack of communication that McKilligan was at a high risk of reoffending, as well as gaps in information on his family history, which included the fact that McKilligan was sexually abused as a child. Maycliffe Young People's Centre had also given a reference to a university in Newcastle that McKilligan had attended, which failed to mention that he had committed sex attacks on children. Ken Black from the centre in Newton Aycliffe said that the case exposed the need for better communication between agencies. Following McKilligan's release from Aycliffe's Young People's Centre, he had no contact with them. It is speculated that Bournemouth Social Services had the responsibility of informing the police of McKilligan's new address in Newcastle. However, Bournemouth Social Services believed that it was the role of Acliffe's Young People's Centre. John Fitzgerald, the chairman of the panel in charge of the review, said that The sense of sadness that the panel drew from this review was immense. Wesley Neely's life was cut unnecessarily short by this cruel attack. The review suggested that effective treatment could prevent similar tragedies from occurring again and ensure that somebody like McKilligan could not slip through the net. There had only been three recorded reviews of McKilligan's progress and treatment at Aycliffe. It emerged that he had decided to leave the centre and remain under supervision elsewhere after he was caught trying to seduce another youth in the unit. Staff threatened to go to the Child Protection Board as a result because they did not allow any sexual behaviour or activity between those in their care. McKilligan had been cited for 15 incidents while in the centre, 13 of which were sexual in nature. The review also recommended creating more psychiatric units so that offenders could be treated locally. Dominic McKilligan had been sent for treatment far from where he had lived due to a breakdown between Bournemouth Social Services 
and social services in the northeast. In conclusion, the report said, there was no consistent standards in the care and evaluation of young sex offenders. There was no single national watchdog to oversee care programmes. There was no agreed form of evaluating how effective care has been and no consistency in the provision of special care for young offenders. Social services of Bournemouth, Durham and Newcastle accepted the findings of the review and apologised to Wesley's family. The chairman of the review said, Even if interagency communication had been 100% perfect, we cannot say that we would have prevented Wesley's death. And that is the hardest thing for me to say today. Wesley's grandfather Harry stated, The family's feeling is that if these people had done their job properly, he still might have had Wesley here with us today. The House of Commons debated the review on November 21st, 2001. Speaker Jim Cousins said that Wesley Neely was a member of his constituency. Cousins said, Most of my constituency is very diverse. It comprises a mixture of people living together of different races, religions, lifestyles and age groups and has a very mobile population of the kind that one sees in any big city in which people find themselves and sometimes lose themselves. Dominic McKilligan arrived in Fenham just one such part of my constituency at the age of 18, to lose himself, and tragically to find others. When he came to Fenham he was already highly intelligent, manipulative and disturbed, a practised abuser of long-standing with a long-established capacity for wicked threats and acts for which he showed no remorse. He sought out young Wesley Neely, led him away and murdered him. Jim Cousins said that McKilligan had been placed in the Fenham area with no outreach programme or adequate support. The first time the Northumbria Constabulary learned he was in the area was when he presented himself as a witness who saw Wesley Neely. The former Minister of State at the Department of Health, Jackie Smith, said that Dominic McKilligan had received treatment for his offending behaviour. Smith also said that it was ultimately Dorset and Bournemouth social services who were responsible for McKilligan's care. Smith did agree that there were lessons to be learned from the tragedy, including the need for area child protection committees to communicate on a multi-agency basis. The Children Leaving Care Act 2000, which was implemented in October 2001, would have ensured that authorities would have remained in contact with McKilligan after his supervision ended, even as an adult until he was 21 years of age. Although the law set in the previous decade meant the McKilligan did not have to register as a sex offender due to his age, the Sex Offenders Act, which came into effect the day after his release, meant that anyone convicted of the same crime at that age would have to register with the police. At the time, over 450 children were convicted of sexual offences each year, 
and there were not enough services to adequately deal with each case. Along with the Northumbria Police and the local Chronicle newspaper, the Neelys campaign said that these failings would never happen again. Northumbria Police said that those accused of murder and other serious crimes often escaped being placed on the sex offenders register when a judge merges charges under a more serious crime. They wanted those convicted of sexually motivated crimes to be placed on the register regardless of whether or not they were convicted of a sexual assault. Following the review findings, Dominic McKilligan's own mother would brand him a psychopath. She said she did not believe there was any effective treatment for people like her son. In the aftermath of Wesley's death, his mother Liz and grandfather Harry found help with the Homicide Support Unit. The self-help organisation in Newcastle was created by June Richardson, whose son Martin Brown was murdered by 10-year-old Mary Bell in 1968. June had set the organisation up as a way to use her traumatic experience for something positive. Through the homicide support unit, Harry met Pamela Nixon, whose teenage daughter Emma Carter was murdered in an arson attack while babysitting. Harry and Pamela became close, bonding over their grief, and in 2001 they were married. Speaking about their relationship, Harry said, We got together because we understand each other. We've been through the same kind of things, and when we're together we can talk to each other. Sometimes outsiders might think we're behaving strangely, but we don't have to apologise for anything. The Home Office later announced changes to sex offender legislation. Going forward, people convicted of murder, kidnapping false imprisonment or malicious wounding would be put on the sex offender's register if there was a sexual motivation behind the crime. The following year it was announced that a substantial computer database linked together 43 forces across England and Wales which would assist police in keeping track of sexual predators. In August 2002, following the discovery of the remains of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman in Soham, Wesley's grandfather spoke to the media about the case. He said, Something like that changes your life forever. It's the hardest thing in the world for a parent or relative. I really feel for the parents of those little girls. Their hearts must be breaking right now. As long as they're missing, there's hope. You just keep clinging on to the idea that there's still a chance they're alive somewhere and that they're going to come back to you. But there's also a feeling of helplessness. You think you're not doing enough. You make statements and appeals. But at the end of the day, there's nothing you can do. And that's a terrible feeling. You don't think it can get any worse. 
but when you hear the news they've been found, it does. All your hopes get shattered. Harry spoke of the ordeal of waiting for a missing child to be found and said that even with the help of a family liaison officer like Heather Carroll, once the trial ends, victims' families are on their own. In 2004, Wesley's family backed a new law that was aimed at protecting children with stricter measures against child sex abuse and grooming. The Sex Offenders Act was considered the most radical reform regarding sex crimes for more than 100 years. The grooming offence meant that anybody convicted of contacting a child, including through the internet, with the intention of committing a sex offence, would be facing up to 10 years in prison. It was hoped that the new law would stop child predators before they even get the opportunity to commit a sex offence. Wesley's grandfather again spoke with the media and stated, The thing with paedophiles is that they never give up. The only way to stop them is to lock them up for good. Six years later, it was revealed that the Department of Health had failed to implement the recommendations that had been made in the wake of Wesley Neely's murder. The revelation horrified Wesley's loved ones. His mother said, I feel disgusted. The government has let me down. They've let my dead son down. And they've let other children down. The survey had been conducted by Professor Simon Hackett of Durham University to find out what services were available across the UK to stop children at risk carrying out sex offences. Around 40% of the respondents said they had absolutely no access to any kind of assessment services within their area and only 8% were satisfied with the availability and the quality of services. In 2018, it was announced that Dominic McKilligan had applied for parole after serving his minimum 20-year sentence. Wesley's bereft family were informed there was a possibility he would be released in July of that year. Liz shared her fears with the media that if released, McKilligan would strike again. She said that the announcement was entirely out of the blue, they had no clue he was going to apply for parole and that she was terrified of another family going through the tragedy that had befallen her family that fateful afternoon back in 1998. Twenty years isn't punishment for what he has done, she said. The parole board announced that they would put public safety as their number one priority when deciding whether Dominic McKilligan would be released. They said that if McKilligan was still a threat to children, then he would not be paroled. Wesley's mother Liz wrote a victim impact statement in a bid to prevent McKilligan from being released on licence. 
Retired DSI Trevor Fordy said that he did not believe prison would have lessened the danger McKilligan posed. Dominic McKilligan failed in his first bid for freedom. The parole board had deemed that he was still a danger to the public, so much so that he was denied his request to be moved to an open prison. So where are we now? There was a significant delay in Wesley Neely's abduction being investigated. This was partly due to the number of what were thought to be confirmed sightings at the time. Former Detective Superintendent Trevor Fordy had since worked to get such sightings recognised as empathetic sightings which means they would have to be investigated or ruled out before they impact a missing person inquiry. Although members of the public were trying to help, the mind is not always reliable, and emotions can give way to false memories. Dominic McKilligan will be allowed to apply for parole every two years until he is released. Each application will bring to the surface the grief that has consumed the lives of Wesley Neely's relatives for over 20 years. Wesley's mother Liz said, We don't live, we just exist. She thinks of her son daily, and sometimes envisions what kind of a man he would have grown into. There's no doubt in her mind her son would have been a gentle giant. Each year, Harry and Liz lay flowers at Wesley's grave for his birthday. Harry said, Christmas isn't the best time for us. It brings everything back. We should have been celebrating Wesley's birthday each year, but instead I buy flowers for his grave. Harry hopes that McKilligan is never released from prison. He thinks that the authorities just don't realise what they are dealing with. Harry said Wesley's only crime was being too friendly, and Wesley was taken in by a monster. Harry remarked, Some days you're fine, but suddenly something flicks a switch, and you're back there, going through it all again. I don't think you ever come to terms with something like this. You try to get on with your life and live it as best you can. But it's never going to be the same. Never. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.